Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. The Financial Freedom Act. It's an act that's mission is to find a nonpartisan solution to poverty, Social Security, the decline of our middle class, our deficit, our skyrocketing national debt, and the high cost of taxes, health care, and college. Today I am joined by Scott Smith, an entrepreneur, author, and managing member of the C-Squared Fund. He was an early pioneer in structured finance on Wall Street, originating the first mixed property commercial mortgage conduit and securing a billion dollar line of credit from DLJ. He developed the model for securizing loans that became the cornerstone for mortgage-backed securities today. Scott also helped structure the financing for the first phase of President Nelson Mandela's redevelopment program, which provided affordable housing for some 11,000 families near Soweto, South Africa, and paved the way to provide housing for many more families throughout the nation. Scott is the author of The Financial Freedom Act, a book that develops the basis for a congressional bill that would replace income taxes with a universal payments tax, which would slash the tax rate to 0.2%, balance the budget, and provide basic income, healthcare, and college for all U.S. citizens. So join us, and welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. I am so thrilled, Scott, to have you join me today in the studio. It's so fun to do it live. And it is. Instead of you know, Skyping, I usually Skype. So it's so nice to have you here. Nice to be here in person, too. Thank you. So I'm talking today to the originator of the Financial Freedom Act and putting out the economic fire with these life-changing solutions, right? Right. So I want right. to talk more about that. But one of the things that caught me when I went to your website mm-hmm. was your own personal journey, oh. kind of what brought you here and this experience of the seven-year-old boy. Can you mm-hmm. speak to that a little bit, what that journey was like? Well, that was a remarkable experience for my family. Back in 1963, my father was a reporter and he applied for a job with Airstream Trailer to write a book about a caravan they were hoping to sponsor that would go all the way around the world. So as a small family, you know, I had two younger sisters and my mom and dad, they gave us an Airstream and we joined about a hundred other Americans, some Canadians too, left uh, Los Angeles in a, on a ship and then ended up driving all the way around the world in that Airstream trailer for over a year. So, I mean, historic events happened, like we happened to be in Cambodia, Angkor Wat, Cambodia, when President Kennedy was assassinated. And it was communist control at the time. So we were informed of the president's death by a um, armed Russian soldier. Wow. What was uh, that like? Well, it was scary for the adults as, as a seven-year-old. I, Kennedy was president and killed, but... It didn't really register too much, but I did observe all the um, adults there, you know, sobbing in the jungles of Cambodia. Um, And and then, of course, we didn't know 
had he been shot through a communist plot, and here we are in Cambodia. So we lay low for a few days um, just to see if the world wouldn't end. But we, um, we traveled through Iraq, Iran. Um, we went through Jerusalem, Russia. We, we had trailers parked in Moscow in 1964. We were personally escorted to see Lenin's body, mummified body. So we got to see a lot of interesting things. But the key takeaway for me is that the, all the people of the world were really good people. They all had the same aspirations. They had the same hopes. They were very hospitable. We were in Afghanistan and we were invited into different tents of the different nomads. And hey, hey everybody loved everybody. And I remember actually over and over thinking as a seven and eight year old child, nothing wrong with the people of the world, it's the leaders. Because they'd all talk about the leaders, you know, lead to different wars and stuff like that, especially in Russia the conversations we had with people there, it made me realize that power corrupts and that the um, leaders of the world are really pulling the people of the world into wars. It's not the people of the world who are crusading for a war. That was a good takeaway. Well, and this wonderful thing of being able to see just this deep part that is truly connected through mm -hmm. all of us, you know, mm -hmm. and the good in all of these people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I've heard that said so many times that if we could really just look at what we have similar mm -hmm. instead of our differences, we would find there's so much more that connects yeah. us at a heart level instead of things that seem to divide us. We have, as Americans, we have a, opinions about Iraq or in, any of the countries out there, the people of the country countries, um, we have opinions based upon what the little tiny bit we may hear on the news, which gets played up. We have no real connection to those people unless we have had the opportunity to go over there and meet these people. I have never met anyone who has gone over into any other nation where they've really gotten to know the people who come away disliking the people. It's just never happened. It's the opposite is true. And that's a truth we need to learn about the world. Scott, that reminds me, it's a, it's a phrase that comes up in my mind so often that it's really hard to hate up close. Oh, I haven't heard that phrase. That's, that's a good saying. So that when we're together and we're, we are face-to-face -face and we're interacting with different people and just being open-hearted to them, mm -hmm. what we can really learn and, and understand and connect to Mm -hmm. So exactly what you said, then we come back from these experiences and we're like, wow, mm -hmm. they were wonderful. They were warm. They were inviting. Even within the United States, I've been blessed, I guess, in, in knowing a, a very diverse range of people. So I'm personal friends with a number of billionaires and I know quite a few homeless people. I know people on many different parts of the country, um, liberal, conservative, libertarians, Green Party people, and I know them on a personal level. And they'll invariably, they'll express a variety of opinions about the others. You know, whether it's a poor person talking about wealthy people or a wealthy person talking about poor people, they'll express these opinions. And I'll, I'll listen quietly and I'll say, I'm, I'm just amazed at how far off base everybody is with their opinions. Our opinions and our perspectives about the truth of the world around us is, is mostly off. And so we end up, a great deal of us end up living and believing in lies. 
all day long. And that doesn't serve us well. It's, you know, there's an irony that the great irony about that is we're supposedly living in the age of information. And it's maybe more true that we're just living in the age of disinformation. Yeah. So how do we get closer to this truth, Scott? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think that no, there's no one silver bullet, but I think that the Financial Freedom Act that I'm proposing and that I'm continuing to work on, it's an organic work in many ways, the Financial Freedom Act, it would certainly go a long way to bridging the people in the country. It would certainly go a long way to bridging conservatives and liberals. It's a, it's a humorous experience for me, but I'll, I'll speak to a liberal group and invariably within a few minutes, they're on fire on the idea, they want to do it. And the first question usually somebody asks is, Scott, how do we get the conservatives on board? And I say, you look, when I speak to a conservative group, the exact same thing happens. People catch on fire. And as soon as they realize, hey, this is something I really believe in our, my heart I should do, they, they then say, Scott, how do you get the liberals on board? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that just shows a reflex in us that's not good, which is if I like this idea, that means these other people, they must not like it. Because my second, my question back to them is, what do you think that the liberals, or if I'm talking to liberals, what do you think the conservatives wouldn't like about this? And then people think of a while and they realize, I guess, I guess you're right. You know, there is such a thing as a solution that is a, equally appealing to the two different political divides. And in fact, you know, on a personal note, when I meet with people in politics, so I, I do get to meet with a lot of our elected politicians, my little soapbox is you're deluding yourself when you think that there's a liberal perspective on an issue and a conservative perspective on an issue. The, this doesn't, it's not in the ether of the universe that there's a liberal perspective or a conservative perspective. It's something we've trained ourselves to think this way. It's just group think. And it's, it's tribal warfare. That's all it is. The truth is that an issue comes up, there isn't one or another perspectives on it. There's just an answer to it. And that answer generally appeals to the values that a liberal may be more inclined to, you know, hold closer to his heart. And it, it ought to appeal to the values that a conservative does. If you, if you, if you just look at the values behind those, the two parties, you know, conservative value would be we should have a balanced budget. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I don't see many conservatives really doing anything about balancing the budget. Another value a conservative would have is we shouldn't be carrying all this debt. Well, I would say we shouldn't have any debt at all. And under the Financial Freedom Act, we actually would have no debt at all. A liberal value would be that we should take care of poor people. We should do what we can as a nation so that we don't have poverty, whether that's helping people directly with money or an educational program or whatever. It's... Um, you can go right into the scriptures if you go to the evangelical right in the scriptures that they're espousing. That's what it says. Take care of poor people. Take care of widows. Take care of orphans. You know, So that's not a liberal value. 
but it's just one that the liberals may, may surface with them more. Is there anybody in our country who doesn't think we ought to have quality health care? <laughs> you know, why? Why, is that a, why is that get bantered back and forth between conservative and liberal? And the answer to, the answer to why the divide exists, really, is that we are operating under an old financial paradigm. And under that old paradigm, there actually is not a solution to taxes or to debt or to poverty or to health care. Under the current paradigm, it doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative, you aren't going to come up with an answer. And you see that when you begin to study um, the tenets of the Financial Freedom Act, it's a paradigm shift that once it occurs, those aren't problems anymore. Under the old paradigm, they were intractable problems. It wasn't that we needed to have more austerity or more whatever it is that you hear out there all the time. It would have never gotten you anywhere. Only the paradigm shift solves it, and then it's solved solidly once and for all. That's what's amazing about it. Well, you have a great story about New York City oh, yeah. and the turn of the century. Yeah. And I think it really helps bring to light this point that you're speaking of. Yeah. Will, you, will you share that? Sure. That's, that is a great example. They, they needed a paradigm shift at the time. The problem was, you know, horses, the amount of horses, whether they were, you were riding them or they were pulling a carriage, didn't matter. The number of horses was increasing rapidly in New York, not just with the population, but literally per capita, it was increasing because as, as society was growing and we were having more goods and services, the amount of horses that were needed to deliver that was increasing. And so we were literally at a point around 1900 in which there was 4 million pounds of manure that were deposited on the streets of New York each year. And there were thousands of horses. I've heard figures of 15,000 per year dropping dead in the streets of New York. And you're trying to pull them out as fast as you can, but they're rotting sometimes for days. You've got manure and rotting dead animals all over the city. And of course, it, it, it snarls the traffic, you know, and the delivery system. So it was mayhem. It was, it was a disaster. It was the number one uh, subject for letters to the editor. And here's my point. Everyone had an opinion as to how to solve it. And none of the opinions actually were going to work. Everyone just was like, we, well, we just have to limit the number of people in the city. We just, you know, none of these solutions would work. They literally had an international conference because New York was not an isolated incident. This is happening in London and Paris, all the major cities. And the international conference brought together the top experts and it failed. They spent a few days and they just disbanded and they said, there's, there's just no solution. We're doomed. Now, here's the irony. A lot of the people rode to that conference in a car. And no one connected the dots like, hey, this thing I'm writing to the conference in, you know, it doesn't put manure out and doesn't die. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Maybe this is the solution here. And the solution just sort of, that paradigm shift over to automobiles occurred in just a few years. You know, there's these wonderful pictures where, you know, in, in this year, you see one car amidst all the horses. And it's like five years later, there's one horse right. on the corner and all the cars. The problem just turned into a non-problem. There wasn't anything you really had to figure out to do about the manure. 
because you weren't going to be using horses. And anything you had to do to figure out about how to get horses off the street faster, they weren't even going to be there. They weren't going to be dying on the street. I was reminded of the story a few years back when I went, I think it's Park Place, you know, in New York, right around Central Park. They had like two or three horses. Oh, yeah. That go around with a carriage. And just a few horses dropping a little manure was so objectionable that what they've had to do is put diapers on the horses. <laughs> I th- I've just was in New York a couple of years ago, so I know this, these that. little poop pouches. Yes. Yes. I mean, can you imagine tens of thousands of horses? Oh my gosh. What yes. it smelled like. <laughs> so, I mean, and that's great perspective to lead into then talking about, tell us more about just the inner workings of the Financial Freedom Act. I know Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, I've watched your TED talk. There's a TED Mm -hmm. talk available for people that want to get more information on this, but you talk about these four different fires that you Mm -hmm. have solutions to. And can you speak to those? Yeah. Sort of back up and give an overview. I think it's, there's two parts to the Financial Freedom Act. One has to do with taxation. That's in, and taxation is the key to unlocking, changing taxation is the key to unlocking most of the problems. The second leg it stands on is banking, which is an entirely different solution. But taxes, you know, if, you, if we're taxing income today, we started taxing in 1913. The first time we had an income tax was around the Civil War. And if you look at the history of the United States, we've tried many, many different taxes all the time. And we adjust those taxes based upon what the economy is. And a tax comes and it goes. Well, income tax is this strange exception. It came in solidly, permanently in 1913. We had a little of it in 1880. I mean, it really, it was the Tax Act in 1913 established income taxes. Well, it's, it's now 2019. It's 106 years. Our economy has arguably changed more in the last 100 years than it did in the history of mankind. And we haven't changed our tax base. And I would argue that sales taxes are just another form of income tax because it comes out of our income. For the most part, property taxes are another form of income tax. And so we are just basically, the whole system is running off of people paying a part of their income to provide the revenue for the government. And so now I think if a listener is listening to me, on this, they'd say, but what else is there? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a corporate tax and financial freedom tax is not all about, not at all about the corporate tax either. What has happened in our economy is that income was probably the right thing to tax for a long time. And when it first started, Henry Ford was paying people $5 an hour. You know, well, that's, that's probably like paying somebody $500 an hour today, you know, Income was growing. Income was the new thing. Technology was fueling income because you put people on an assembly line with some technology and one guy could produce 50 times more than he could have with no tools and no assembly line. And so we were beginning to experience an abundance and that abundance was being reflected in our income. That all changed in the 1970s. In the 1970s, income flattened out. And it hasn't grown since then. So that's 50 years ago. We've had flat income for 50 years. And we're still taxing income. But the economy has been growing. 
and it's been growing by leaps and bounds. And so if you're thinking of like a, a pie chart and you're looking at what defines an economy, the only way you can really define it is the movement of money. You know, when a payment is made, some, somebody sold some stocks, somebody sold a house, somebody got paid, somebody bought some groceries, it's the movement of money. And if you're seeing that the economy is continuing to grow, so that pie is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but income has been fairly stagnant, that means it's a smaller piece of the pie. And that's what I began to analyze, like how small of a piece of the pie is it? What, what else could we be taxing out there? And that's where the dirty little secret comes in because income, our income collectively is around $16 trillion. All of our government spending, if you include every city, state, and federal, is around $5 trillion. And whether we're collecting it out of sales tax or property tax or straight income tax, that $5 trillion is coming out of our 16 But the size of the pie is $5,000 trillion a year. That's how many... That's how much money changes hands, payments that are made under one way or another. It's 5,000 trillion and our income is 16. That means our income is about one third of 1% of the pie. We're not taxing the rest of it. And so the tax that would tax all the rest of it would be something called a, a payments tax. I mean, you could put whatever name you want on it, but it's anytime someone got paid, then you would take off take out two-tenths of a percent under the Financial Freedom Act. And that means you could eliminate income taxes altogether. And sales taxes at the grocery store. You own a home, you can imagine what it would be like not to pay property taxes anymore. So for, let's look at what it would mean for a single person earning a hundred grand. Right now, if you take their income tax and their state income tax and their sales taxes and property, and it's generally out of their $100,000, they're paying around $45,000 in taxes. Under this, they'd pay $200. So, I mean, it's like mind-boggling. You yeah. go from $45,000 in taxes and you go all the way down to $200. It's just no, no conservative out there exists that would think of that big of a tax cut. Right. You know, <laughs> that's beyond Ronald Reagan, you know, that tax cut, 45000 to $200. But if you're taking that two-tenths out of a, percent, of a percent out of every payment, you actually would collect $10 trillion, which is twice of what we're spending today. I'm Dr. Natalie Phillips, host of Connecting a Better World, and every Monday on the show, we take time to spotlight individuals, businesses, and organizations doing good in this world with thought-provoking interviews designed to focus on the impact they are making in our community. Listen live every Monday at 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern, only on NOCO FM, and subscribe to the podcast at noco.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. So there's not a lack of revenue for the government if you do it that way. There's an abundance of revenue. And you're no longer having to pay income taxes. And so all these issues that you get between conservatives and liberals, it's well, the poor need to be paying 
their fair share. Well, at two-tenths of a percent of anything they receive, they are. The rich need to be paying it. You know, they need all their loopholes need to go away. Well, the loopholes would be gone away. Payments tax, two-tenths of a percent, they are. You know, so it's like it, it, it's fine. All the old arguments are moot. I want to make sure I understand this payment tax. So give me a practical example. I'll give you an example. So right away, people who are pretty schooled in the area go, oh, it's a VAT, a value-added tax. Oh, I get it, a VAT. And I'm like, no, it's, it's, not, it's not even similar to a VAT. A VAT is a sales tax that's kind of graduated. It, it's for the whole supply chain. So in other words, it, I mean, it's a pretty clever idea. It's like before you buy package of tea in the grocery store, there's a whole lot of stuff that had to happen. There's transportation of it, manufacturing of it, maybe mining for the little staples on the tea bag, you know, um, which celestial season doesn't use, by the way, I'm from Boulder. Yeah. But um, there's a whole supply chain. And so the value-added tax is at every level of that supply chain, we take a tiny sliver. No one gets hurt. But the supply chain is, you know, that falls under GDP. You know, that's the total production in, in our country. It's, I've never seen, a, I've seen a lot of estimates of it, but say it's around $50 trillion. Some people argue closer to $25 trillion, that whole supply chain. If it's $50 trillion, and I've just said there's $5,000 trillion in payments, the entire supply chain of everything we're used to and see is, is less than 1% of the payments out there. What warm-blooded human beings pay each other for in order for goods and services to get to them and use is less than 1% of the economy of the payments out there. And so what you're saying is you're reducing the tax rate 100-fold lower than if you just tax that 1% of the economy. You know, if it was a normal VAT, this is 100 times cheaper than a normal VAT would be. So what payments are out there that don't tie into the economy we see? Okay, what's getting taxed that's not getting taxed? Because that's, that's the question. And, and it's true, something's being taxed. Not. Um, so I'm a venture capitalist. When we raise money and the money comes into our fund, we're not taxed on that. When we invest that money into a company that does not get taxed. Well, let's look at a PE fund, same thing as a VC fund. When they take in a billion dollars, 1% of a billion dollars is, is $10 million. So a payments tax on that would be $2 million. So when a PE fund takes in a billion dollars, they would be taxed $2 million. They're not taxed on that today. But they, they do charge their own investors $20 million. They charge 2% of the billion they take. And that's how they make their money. That's okay. how, you know, general, we general partners make our money on that. Every year we charge 2%. Uh, payments tax would be a one-time fee of 2 million on a billion. So that's not being taxed. And uh, another example is if you, if you sold your house, uh, pay, you paid $2 million for your house, you sold it for a million, you'd add a loss. You're not taxed on that. Under payments tax, you would be. It's a million dollars. You're going to pay $2,000 in taxes. Okay. So okay. you just receive that. So th those are real life examples of everything I just talked about. It still is a tiny fraction of the total payments. The real payments are the buying and selling of U.S. Treasury bonds, mortgage-backed securities, 
commodities. That's um, U.S. Treasury bonds are a thousand trillion a year going back and forth. So it's the institutions that are buying a treasury bond and then turning around selling it. And that two-tenths of a percent would go come off of that. That <laughs> economy dwarfs our economy. Yeah. The one we're used to. Talk about the, the other pieces of this because as, oh, yeah. as we what talked about. What are the about, benefits of doing this? Yeah. So not only do you have a tax cut, but if you're collecting two-tenths of a percent, you've collected enough to balance the budget. So no more deficit spending. That's gone. It's in the history. It doesn't come back. You could pay every adult citizen 24000 a year in basic income. Of course, they'll get taxed two-tenths of one percent on that. <laughs> you could pay for free health care if you do it right. That's, that's an integral part of the Financial Freedom Act is doing it right. And you could also provide for um, free college. And, and there's caveats to that, how you have to do that right too. Before I actually had fully developed it, um, the act, I was like, well, how do we pay for college without the cost of college just going through the roof? How do we pay for healthcare in a way that the consumer, the citizen has more choices than they do today and the doctor is freed up and healthcare costs won't go through the roof? And, it, and I can tell you it's not Obamacare, nor is it any of the proposals that the Republicans float around. It's a free market type of a system. So let's look at the college piece is simpler. Um, I call it the American Challenge Program. And the challenge is at two-tenths of a percent is enough money to give anyone going to college or any secondary school 10 grand. And so you definitely do not want to say, oh, here's 10 grand and you can put it to any education you want because the tuition at Harvard will just go up by 10 grand. Right. You know, tuition is skyrocketing. It's, it's ridiculous. Instead, you say, there's a choice. You can either go to the colleges and do student loans and do everything you do today. Don't touch that system. Never rip things apart. Let it stand and allow something to grow next to it. What you're allowing growing next to it is... Or if you find a college that will educate you for 10 grand, we'll pay for that. And you won't have any tuition. But they put not putting 10 grand towards it. It has to be they provide it for 10 grand. Okay. You'll pay for it. Now, what you've just done is you started a firestorm out there in the, in the university systems because colleges are like, if we figure out how to do this for 10 grand, we've got an abundance of students. And I, I happen to be very involved in education through my wife. She's in, involved in a lot of colleges out there. And we know a lot of high-level people in the colleges, presidents and all that. Guess what? Every single one of them I've talked to, whether it's an Ivy League or it's a, a state-owned school or small private, says, yeah, we could do it for ten grand." They go, the only reason our college prices are so high is because all these other people are not paying and this and that and it's just, you know, the cost of financing and the student loans, it's just, it's, it's a mess. And if we just knew we we're getting 10 grand per student that came in, we could easily deliver that. And some of them even said we could provide the housing for it that I've talked to. So it would work. It just forces a discipline on the system. It just says, here's, you know, you don't want to legislate change within the college of how you run it. That's just a nightmare. You want as little red tape as possible. And I tend to be a conservative in that area. As little as regulation as possible. You just say, figure out how to do it for 10 grand boys and you got it. And they will. <laughs> so healthcare is a similar 
issue. Healthcare is, is one of the biggest crises right now. We spend $10,000 per person in our country. Israel spends $2,000 per person. And guess what? Healthcare is better in Israel than it is in the U.S. And cost of living between the two nations is, is very similar. But that's not an, an anomaly. Israel's not an anomaly. Uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, and South Korea are three of the best healthcare systems out there, and they deliver healthcare at around $3,000 per person. So our healthcare costs are through the roof. And it's simply, you know, the idea of a single payer or this or, this or that taking care of it, it's, I, I get nauseous when I listen to the conservative and liberal approaches to it. None of those would work. The, the problem stems from the fact that providers, whether they're doctors or nurses or institutions, providers are paid on a per procedure basis. And so they're incentivized to drive up the cost. And it's all about reimbursables. And you've got a third party out there, whether it's the insurance company or the government's Medicare and Medicaid division. It's a third party who is trying to clamp down on the cost, but the way they're paying is on a per procedure basis. And so it's, it's backwards. If in, and so the way the American medical program would work, that's a part of the Financial Freedom Act, is there's, it's again, like college, you say, okay, every single person in our country, depending on your age, you've got X dollars that follow you around, it might be six grand or it might be, that follows you around. Now you can go into the system as it is and apply it to insurance and hey, you're better off. But the thing you allow to grow up Decided is the idea you can go to a provider group and you're saying to that group of doctors, you get the top dollar there. You get these dollars that would have been going to an insurance company. We'll give you this amount of money per person to take care of people. You figure out how to do it. All you have to do is keep people happy. And in order to keep them happy, so they keep signed up with your group, you'll have to keep them healthy. But you get the gross revenue. Out of it, if there's any imaging that's necessary, well, you'll have to pay for it. So figure out the imaging better. You know, if there's any pharmaceuticals that are involved, well, you have to pay for it. So right away, the doctor's attitude changes. You know, when the device, medical device comes in, a big pharma comes in, it's like, what do you have to make my patient better? But it's out of my pocket, so keep it cheap. So, for example, um, pedicle screws, screws in surgery, because I know a lot of orthopedic surgeons They've gone for $1,200 to $1,600 each. There's no reason you can't make a titanium pedicle screw for a dollar or two. Right. You could do that. And if the surgeon were having to actually pay for all that, that's the price they'd go to very quickly because otherwise a surgeon would start a company that sells them at a dollar or two. Right. (laughs) So you just say, here's the top line, boys. You figure out how to keep the people healthy. And you don't need a lot of red tape. You don't need a lot of regulations. Like what are the mortality rates? What are that? It's like if people have total free will to choose between different providers, they'll figure out who they like to go to. And it's the people who keep them happy. And so the only regulatory piece to it is if you do want to run a, reg, a, a provider group and there's no like licensing or anything like that. It's just, you're going to hold yourself out to keep people healthy. You're going to do that. This is the amount of money you'll get per person depending on their age. And oh, by the way, they can come and go whenever they want. So you better keep them happy and they'll rate you. 
you know, on your website, you have to give each patient the ability on a scale of one to 10 to say what they think of you. And so you'll have all your advertising about all the good things you'll do. And then there'll be that little telltale number. And if it's a 4.7 out of 10, people are like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> what a huge accountability piece. That's all you need for accountability. All the other accountability is, is, doesn't work. Doesn't count for anything. You know, I mean, you look at like a libertarian perspective or a liberal, it's like every value of any sort of party is in that. It's all about free market. It's all about freedom. So the mantra behind the Financial Freedom Act when I'm trying, when I was trying to create it was, how do you make everybody better off financially? How do you give them more freedom? And really, congressmen, that's the only thing they ever ought to think about when a bill comes before them saying, does this make my constituents financially better off and does it give them more freedom? If it doesn't, why would they vote for it? That's how I simplify things a lot, but that's, that's how it works. You collect two-tenths of a percent. You can actually provide health care and college under that, and you can provide basic income. Now, the beautiful thing about basic income under the Financial Freedom Act is it's twenty-four grand for every adult citizen. It replaces welfare. You don't need the entire bureaucratic mess of welfare under that. You don't have a trap anymore where if somebody does get a job, they lose benefits. Instead, it's like, You've got 24000 to start with, and you make more on top of that. So to build an incentive, you know, when you've got the $10 trillion to work with, you don't put all the money into basic income. You put about 60% of it in basic income and about 40% of it in earned income credits. So the guy who gets a job and earns $10,000 on top of his twenty-four, he gets a 50% credit. That's another five. So now he's at thirty-nine. So even your lazier people are going to say, wait, difference between 24,000 and 39. Yeah, I'm going to Burger King and work a little. Yeah. <laughs> They'll do it. Yeah. They'll do it. And so, you know, as, as the income goes up, the earned income credit percentage drops down because it's not as necessary. So it's a balancing act between basic income and earned income credits. And that ratio will change as society changes, as the, the workplace changes, because eventually through automation, it may be all basic income because there may, we may not have any, any incentive for people to have to go out there to work than, other than the wage. And eventually, I mean, like, think of it this way. If we really play our cards right as a sentient species on this planet, maybe we could all be getting a hundred grand in basic income and no one ever really has to work because robots <laughs> do it all for us. Hey, that'd be pretty cool. You know, we're not there yet. Right. But it's not like, oh, works in a magic thing. You know, it's like work is always work and no one wants to do it. So you're going to have to have the right incentives in there for it to be done. But at the same time, since there is enough automation out there, it isn't really as important for that high of a percentage of our people to work anymore. I want to ask you this before we run out of time. I know you're going to Washington, D.C. Yeah. In a week or so, right? I go there all the time. It's kind of a trip. Okay. <laughs> you hang out there a lot. Yeah. So tell me about what, what's the response you're getting, you know, from oh. the congressmen and from the different people that you're meeting with? What, what are you hearing? It's, it's really funny. I mean, again, like if they're a liberal or conservative, I talk to them, they, they always say, how do you get the other side? They go along. And I go, well, I was just down the hall meeting your colleague who's the opposite of you and he likes it too, you know. 
So the response has been very positive and, and people like it and they see, and they'll say, I like it when they say it and I don't have to say it. It's like, well, this could bring us all together again. And I'm kind of like, think so? Yeah, that's That would be a good thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, because we've spent an awful lot of time, energy and money on, on the division between each of us. That's just, that's just inefficient. That, that's wasted cycles. Yeah. Um, I, find, I find it's a very positive response. And I think the next stage for it is going to be putting it into the public's mind because the vast majority of people have never heard of the Financial Freedom Act. You know, that's the bite the bullet and start, you start appearing on Fox and CNN. And I'm not, I'm not like thrilled about a lot of public exposure. You know, not personally, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd rather just be kind of quietly behind the scenes, but I'll do it so it gets out there. And I think, I think it'll take a few years of exposure and some version of this, if not the version that I'm working on now, will someday come about and we'll forget the old issues of huge taxes and deficits and finger pointing. We'll forget our own horse manure and dead horses, precisely, right? Precisely. Well, you know, maybe one of our grandkids will mention it and we'll go, oh yeah, that was pretty messy. <laughs> yeah, I can, I just really hope that one of my grandkids say, did people really have to pay 30% of their income in taxes? Yeah. 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 I hope that happens someday. What a cool world that would be. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I'm just so thrilled because this is beyond inspirational. I mean, this is just so exciting to to just think about this coming to fruition. Yeah. And how can people find you? How can people oh. plug into the Financial Freedom Act and get more information? They can go to the website. And the website is very simple. It's thefinancialfreedomact.com. <laughs> wow. That, that is it. <laughs> That's that's partly why it was named that the domain was available. Perfect. So yes, the financial freedom Right. Go and learn about Scott Smith's bill. And, and you'll see the news on it too, as things develop. Wonderful. Come out. And we're not looking for money, you know, yeah. we're just looking to save you money. <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's what's so, so beautiful about it. It's like just getting this information and yeah. starting to switch this paradigm because this is so new right. and such a new way of viewing things through this lens. Yeah. I, I think it can be sometimes really difficult to wrap your mind around. People have said they have to, so the book I have out right now is called The New Operating System for the American Economy, but there'll be a book in a couple months called The Financial Freedom Act, Okay. And I've had a lot of finance friends, guys who are really good in finance, and they said, you know, I had to read the book like three or four times. And I'm like, and then I got it. It wasn't that it was complicated because if you have no background in it, you can read the book. It has cartoons in it and everything. It's like, oh, I get it. But there's a mind twist to it. There's a, there's a, there's, you have to see things from a new perspective. And sometimes that takes a while. And I've been at this for years and I had to experience that, you know, it was those many years of just looking at going, oh, we're not looking at things right. I get this, you know. So throughout the book, it talks about even things like trade deficit and other things that we, we think of gives a little new perspective on some of those things. Well, and how important, because to use again, the, the New York City, you know, mm -hmm. analogy, it's like we all are right now just riding around in the cars, not mm -hmm. quite knowing like, oh, there's a different way to do this, yet we're mm -hmm. in the car. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we read about we read about the securities business. You know, it's kind of I think um, you know they're talking about transaction taxes and they'll focus in on the New York Stock Exchange again. New York Stock Exchange is less than one percent of the payments, so it's like, hey, you're starting to get a little close, but um, that's not the way to go. It's not to layer in a new tax on top of the old. It's like tear out the old and just we have a huge tax reduction. And I mean, there are people who pay it that are not paying now. And those are the people that own those huge assets that are being sold. And I've met with them too, of course. And it's like, there's an advantage for them too. They, they actually would do better too, because when that money pumps into the material economies, I call it, the value of those assets, they go way up too. So the super rich get super richer too. If weren't, this wouldn't happen. Right. right? Well, so, so it's a win, win, win. Win, win. Has I love it. Win, win. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, Scott, as we're wrapping up, what what is the essential message that you want to leave listeners with? Wow, that's a good question, right? I think that what I would say is that the world really can be a much better place in terms of the technology we have and our ability to produce things. We simply have artificial handcuffs on, artificial shackles on our ankles. It comes from an archaic financial system that we have today. You don't have to rip the guts out. You just have to make a few tweaks to it. And life can be much better for well-to-do people and for the poor people. Thank you. What a, what a great vision and what great hope there is in this Financial Freedom Act. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. You're welcome. I loved that the conversation really was bipartisan, that you could agree with the Financial Freedom Act and be from either side because we all want similar things. We all want affordable health care. We all want affordable extended educational opportunities. We all want to be able to live a life that's balanced and to be able to pay our bills with ease and enjoy life in the best ways that we can. The Financial Freedom Act shows us how to eliminate the income tax and pay for all we need and more. Imagine what the world would be like if we lived in a place where there was health care for all, social security that is forever secure, and a guaranteed income of about $24,000 a year for every adult American. Scott's Financial Freedom Act truly would create this world of our dreams and create real economic change in our country. I'm so thankful that there are visionaries out there who can help us to create a different way and a different lens to see life through and hopefully create a better world.
This has been a production of NOCO FM.